Welcome everyone. My name is Jose Antonio Rodriguez and I am a partner in Azure's international arbitration team based in Madrid. This is the sixth and final installment in our six-part series of podcast on the topic of renewable energy disputes. It is a series in which we have been sharing the lessons we have learned from acting in renewable energy disputes and our tips and tricks for avoiding and managing such disputes. Today, I am joined by Matthew Saunders, the global head of our international uh, arbitration practice, and Emmanuel Cabrol, an international arbitration partner based in our Paris office. We will today be talking about investment treaties, uh, drawing on Matthew and Emmanuel experience in arbitrating claims for and against states. The aim is to learn how such dispute might arise in the course of a renewable energy project and what key things you need to be thinking about in this context. The first question is, of course, why should clients be thinking about public international law protection in the renewable uh, energy space? I think the answer to that, Jose Antonio, is, is if you look, you look at what renewables projects are, they generally require very significant upfront capital investment. And to attract that investment, often foreign investment, um, into the developing economies where the projects are typically based. Governments have offered a variety of support mechanisms over the years, primarily in the way of subsidies. But subsidies are inherently quite political and therefore renewables projects over their lifetime, they become very vulnerable to the political wind changing and regulatory changes taking place. Maybe politics, maybe, maybe because of technological changes. But what that means is the, the subsidy underpinning for the project can very easily change, very easily alter fundamentally the economics of the project, making a project that was initially very attractive, completely unattractive. Uh, public international law is not subject to or affected by changes in national law, the national law that, that the politicians responsible for the subsidies might change at one point. And it's important when looking at investment opportunities that any foreign investor structures the investment project to ensure that they get the protections that are available under public international law from the very start. Restructuring once the dispute is foreseeable, generally it'll be too late to do that. Okay, so uh, what are the instruments that provide public international law protection? And uh, in your view, what are the most important protection well, the, the, the main instruments are bilateral investment treaties. Those are agreements between states um, which seek to promote foreign direct investment by guaranteeing a certain level of, uh, of minimum protection. So those are, those are bilateral between two states. And then you've got multilateral investment treaties, uh, similar to bilateral investment treaties, but they've got multiple state signatories. At last count, uh, there were, I think, over 2,000 bilateral investment treaties in place, far, far fewer multilateral investment treaties, although that picture is changing. But of particular importance in the renewable space is something called the Energy Charter Treaty. And that's probably, probably the best known uh, of the multilateral investment treaties. Most BITs and MITs, they, they, they provide essentially similar protections. And in our view, the most important of those are protection against expropriation without compensation and guarantees to provide what's called fair and equitable treatment. 
also something called the most favoured nation provision. And I'll, I'll explain that later. That's a little bit technical, but it's quite important in terms of how treaties operate. Right. And Emmanuel, what does that actually mean? What do those protection prevent the state from doing? A protection that is often relied on by investors in renewable arbitrations is, as mentioned by Matthew, fair and equitable treatment. It notably requires a state to act in a transparent manner, in a way that is not arbitrary, grossly unfair, discriminatory, to respect due process. And another aspect that has been invoked in a number of renewable energy arbitrations is that tribunals were notably asked to determine whether the investors had legitimate expectations that were breached by the conduct of the state. So if we take an example, the example of Spain, a number of investors have started arbitration against Spain following modification of its legal regime for incentives for investments in renewable energy. And in those cases, tribunals have notably examined whether the investor had legitimate expectations that the incentive regime would not be modified. This is a very fact-specific question, and tribunals have expressed different views depending on the circumstances of the case, but in several instances, they were in favor of compensation. So this protection covers a wide range of actions depending on the fact of the case, and it is certainly the most commonly invoked protection. Another treaty protection that is frequently invoked by investors and that Matthew also mentioned is expropriation. Uh, expropriation is obviously a very severe form of interference with property. It can be, for instance, a forced seizure of a power plant. But protection against expropriation does not mean that the state cannot expropriate, but it must do so for a public purpose in a not uh, discriminatory manner and with an adequate compensation. But in renewable cases, uh, investors mostly invoked what, we, what is called indirect expropriation to claim compensation. So what is indirect expropriation? It is when the state's conduct causes a loss of value that is equivalent to a deprivation of the investment. So for instance, it will be a regularity, a regulatory change which destroys the financial benefits attached to the project. Matthew also mentioned the most favored nation provision. It is to ensure that the host state does not treat investors less favorably than investors from another country with which the host state has a, an, as a treaty entered into. So those are substantial protections. But importantly, the treaties do not only contain substantial protection, they also offer procedural protections. So all these protections are usually enforceable by means of international arbitration proceedings, which can be brought by the investor against the state itself. And this ability for an investor to raise claims directly against the state before an international tribunal outside the domestic judicial framework is a very important protection. It can be very helpful leverage when things start to go wrong. So you have not only substantial protection, but also, also this very important possibility to get access to a neutral forum. Matthew, you mentioned that uh, investors should, should structure their investment project. So they are protected by public international law from the start of the project. What does this uh, mean exactly? I mean, what it means in practice um, is that investors should start by making sure that they've got in their chain of ownership somewhere an entity which is registered in a jurisdiction 
that is a signatory to a relevant bilateral investment treaty or a multilateral investment treaty. So just to give an example, if the investor is, let's say, looking to invest in a solar project in the Czech Republic, then what the investor should do is check what bilateral investment treaties and multilateral investment treaties the Czech Republic has signed. It's quite a few. If there's one signed with a state in which the investor has nationality, uh, generally corporate nationality, but it can be the nationality of shareholders, or can establish nationality by inserting into its ownership structure a company which is incorporated and registered in that state, then that will likely be sufficient to allow the treaty to bite. Now, it's not always that simple. It's not always enough to insert what we call a brass plate company. Sometimes you need a company that's got a substantive economic activity, but essentially those, those are the steps that need to be taken. Um, there's always a need to check the specific wording of the relevant treaty to ensure that they will apply and to see whether uh, it's necessary for the company to be more than a brass plate or a shell company. There may also be a number of potential nationalities that are available and examining the scope and the content of the different treaties may lead uh, to a conclusion that one jurisdiction is going to be more favourable than another. But what, what that all indicates, I think, is that there's quite a lot of homework that can sensibly be done early on in the planning stage of the investment. But why is there a need to think about this uh, at the outset of a project? Can the party simply restructure an existing project to gain treaty protection? There's nothing stopping them uh, from restructuring in order to obtain protection, but it's going to be a great deal cleaner if the project is set up to attract treaty protection from the, from the very start. The earlier the investor brings itself under the remit of protection under a BIT or an MIT, the better. The reason for that is that if a dispute is already on foot or foreseeable, and of course the, the, the nature of a lot of these disputes mean it can be argued, they are foreseeable very early on. If the investor changes its nationality or inserts a company in the, in the chain of ownership, then the argument is that there's been what we call abusive process. Um, and the responding state, the host state, is likely to run that argument. So to avoid those arguments being advanced, it's far, far better to structure the investment from the absolute start before there's any scope for a host state to argue that the dispute was already on foot when the change was made or was foreseeable when the change was made. Emmanuel, uh, Matthew has mentioned the possibility of arbitration under an investment treaty. How is that different from commercial arbitration? Well, th there are a number of important differences. Uh, for instance, uh, when you have a treaty, um, it's different when it comes to the breach that can be invoked. Claims under a treaty uh, arises from the breach of the treaty protections, and we have mentioned some of them earlier. And they are in addition to any claim that may be available under the contract. And it can be very useful because sometimes the conduct of the state cannot really be related to a breach of a specific clause of a contract, but it can fall under a protection that is uh, offered by a treaty. So in fact, uh, investors could claim compensation both for breach of the contract and breach of the treaty. So the treaty will offer an additional protection, which can be very helpful. Other differences are, uh, for instance, greater transparency of the process. 
the fact that uh, as a treaty comes into play, there will be public international law that will apply. And also there can be a difference in the process itself. Uh, we say that uh, treaties will provide for arbitration to be available uh, in order to enforce uh, the treaty protection. Uh, they can typically provide for ICC, for Incentral. They can also provide for ICSID, and ICSID um, is uh, pretty specific in this respect. ICSID, well, it is an institution created by an international convention in 1966. It is an institution linked to the World Bank, and it is specifically devoted to investment disputes. So it is something very peculiar. ICSID arbitration only applies to disputes between a state and a foreign investors, and, and it must relate to an investment. And the state and the foreign investor must come from countries that are parties to the ICSID convention. The good thing with ICSID is that the process has been thought and entirely con conceived for this. It is tailor-made for this type of disputes, really tailor-made for investment arbitration disputes. For instance, there is no involvement of domestic courts, even to annul the award. Annulment only on limited grounds is inside the ICSID system, the ICSID process. And a key benefit also of ICSID arbitration is that awards are directly enforceable as final judgments of domestic court would be in all states that are party to the ICSID convention. And there are many of them around the world, more, more than 150. This is a very strong advantage. Uh, and is investment arbitration uh, only relevant when the state is involved directly in the project? Well, not at all, in fact. So Matthew mentioned before that this treaty can provide helpful leverage when things start to go wrong due to measures taken by the state, even, the, in, even if the state is not involved in the specific project. And in fact, in a heavily regulated industry like uh, the renewable sectors, claim often arise from changes to the legislative framework. This was a case, for instance, in a number four of recent cases involving Spain, Italy, Czech Republic, and more recently, Ukraine. Such tax actions do not usually take place overnight, and investors sometimes have some indication that adverse action is imminent. Being aware of their public international rights and the means to enforce them through arbitration can be very effective and can help investors to engage with the government to potentially prevent adverse actions from being taken. And Emmanuel, what are the key things that clients uh, considering investment arbitration uh, should be aware of? Well, there are a number of procedural points that need to be borne in mind, depending on the specific treaty and its provisions. Um, we can think, for instance, about cooling off period, exhaustion of local remedies or forking the road provisions. So, for instance, cooling off periods, uh, that means that the arbitration may not start immediately. It is not immediately available. The treaty may provide that uh, the investor cannot commence proceedings for a certain period of time, usually three or six months, and that during that time there must be attempt to amicably resolve the dispute with the state. Exhaustion of local remedies, that means that uh, under some treaties, there is a requirement that the investor will exhaust all local judicial remedies before submitting claim to arbitration and forking the roads is also uh, a condition, a provision that is provided in some treaties that require the investor to choose to either pursue its claims for arbitration or before local courts or other forum provided. So for instance, the fork in the road provision uh, was invoked in a case uh, called Sharon versus Spain in the uh, renewable uh, energy sector. 
and Spain's objection was based on prior unsuccessful challenge brought before the Spanish Supreme Court and the European Courts of Human Rights. But in this specific case, the tribunal rejected the objection because the parties in the local courts and in the arbitration were not exactly the same. So one must be careful before commencing proceedings in local court because in some cases they may have some impact and come, could prevent from initiating arbitration proceedings, but it is only in specific cases. You have both mentioned that changes in the legislative framework are a common catalyst for investment treaty disputes in the renewable and industry. Uh, we have seen this play out in Spain, Czech Republic, and, and Italy in particular. Those states has, uh, have introduced incentives, uh, such as feed-in tariffs and other government uh, subsidies, to encourage investment in the sector, but in the context of the global economic downturn, have uh, removed or reduced such incentives, uh, which has led uh, to a wave of claims by investors that, uh, especially in the case of Spain, have somewhat dominated the investment treaty dispute arena for over a decade. Uh, Matthew, do you think we are coming to an end of these types of uh, claims? In short, no. Um, you only need to look at events of the last few days, COP26 and the subsidy regimes that will come out of that to know that um, this sort of area is going to continue. In fact, there have been claims filed against Spain even this year, notwithstanding the fact it passed legislation aimed at ending treaty claims out of its 2012 and 2013 renewable energy reforms. Um, so maybe the current round of claims involving Spain will dry up, but there'll be other catalysts uh, in maybe in other states. And as I say, you can see developments around COP26 and move to net zero are going to uh, support the rolling out of, of further subsidy regimes. It, it's inevitable. In the more immediate future, um, I think states will look to withdrawing or amending subsidies or incentives as part of the economic recovery post-COVID-19, and there'll be changes uh, to subsidies. New technologies will come along, uh, and those will attract subsidies at the expense of maybe older uh, renewable technologies. As states put in place new incentives as part of the drive towards meeting net zero, I think one thing we learned from history, that it's, it's only a matter of time before economic and political pressure builds, those incentives become too expensive or they're restructured for a variety of reasons. Uh, at that stage, then investors are left in the same sort of position as those uh, in Spain, the Czech Republic and, and in Italy. It's the unpredictability um, of this area, I think, that means that, that investors really do need to pay regard to, to the benefits they can obtain through treaty protection. They really just need to take the basic steps to protect themselves, to give them options under public international law. It's not always going to be the case that a, an arbitration needs to be commenced and leverage can be exercised against the host state. But, but get those options, structure the investment properly, and then you've got those options available. That's really important. Now, at this point uh, in the podcast, we always uh, ask our speakers for their best uh, renewables dispute war story. Can either of you share one with us? Well, one, one um, has the antenna that goes, a, it's a few years back uh, for me, but it's in the nature of the renewable sector that projects will often take place 
in uh, states that are emerging economies where legal systems are less established, less settled, less predictable. And in those states, um, there are often challenges, challenges for investors. And one of those is around bribery and corruption. And a few years ago, I had cause to ask questions of uh, somebody who'd been a very senior minister in the USSR, before the collapse of the USSR. And he was then a senior minister in the Russian Federation. And he became a very senior minister. Uh, I won't name the state, but he became a very senior minister in, in the state uh, that we were acting for. And there were allegations that he had funneled uh, monies to a relative. And I, I asked him about this. And uh, he took his glasses off and he looked down his nose. And he said, well, Mr. Saunders, um, let's talk about that when you're 75, shall we? I thought that was one of the best put downs, uh, most comprehensive put downs I'd ever experienced. Um, and we never did explore that particular line of questioning. Um, it was a very diplomatic and effective way of shutting me up. So I think from a lawyer's perspective, the, the cases that come out of disputes in this area, they can be particularly colourful, uh, particularly interesting. And you get to go to lots of interesting places and meet interesting people. And occasionally they'll tell you to shut up. And that was my experience. Interesting. Thank you, Matthew. And thank you, Emmanuel. That's all we have time for today. Thanks a lot. Thank you. And this concludes our six-part series of podcasts on renewable energy disputes. If you would like to learn more on this topic, we have published a special report called the International Arbitration Renewable Energy Disputes. Do get in touch with any of us or your usual Azure contact if you would like a copy of that. Thanks for tuning in and bye for now. If you enjoy Ashurst Legal Outlook, why not check out our other two podcast series as well? Ashurst Business Agenda tackles the big strategic issues that business leaders face. And ESG Matters at Ashurst reveals how business leaders are rising to mounting environmental, social and governance challenges. You can listen and subscribe to Business Agenda and ESG Matters wherever you get your podcasts.